Major Lindsay and Africa presents Bouncing Back, conversations about resilience for lawyers. Welcome to Bouncing Back, Resilience for Lawyers. This podcast is brought to you by Major Lindsay and Africa, the global leader in legal search and consulting. I'm your host, Rebecca Glatzer. I'm a managing director in the associate practice group at Major Lindsay and Africa. In this podcast, I'll speak to successful professionals about the hiccups, bumps, bruises, and setbacks they've experienced in their careers and personal lives, and how they ultimately bounce back from those experiences to thrive. Today, my guest is James Hahn. James is Senior Principal Counsel of Real Estate at Whole Foods Market. He and his team assist with the launching of new stores, ensuring that approximately 500 brick-and-mortar Whole Foods sites operate smoothly and serve as liaison between landlords and Whole Foods. Prior to going in-house, James served as an associate in the New York office of Haynes & Boone, specializing in real estate finance. Prior to the start of his legal career, James worked at Morgan Stanley as an infrastructure analyst and as a broadcast analyst for Showtime Sports, specializing in mixed martial arts. James holds a BS in finance from Boston College, an MS in sports management from Columbia University, and a JD from Florida University School of Law. James, thank you for being here today. No problem. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, get right into it. Um, James, in a prior communication with me, you mentioned that you were laid off from your first job during the Great Recession in 2009. Uh, what happened? Yeah, that was the first job I'd gotten out of college. It was the job that I thought I was supposed to have, the job that I went to school to get. And um, really, New York City was kind of the dream for me. So yeah. after graduating in 2006, I had uh, I had a degree in finance. I went into Morgan Stanley uh, to work in investment banking. And that was kind of the goal at the time. But uh, looking back, I realized it was probably one of the things that I should have thought about a little bit more, uh, you know, so much during that period of my life was kind of directed by family, friends. Um, I was just playing the role of of the successful college student who'd moved to New York and gotten a job on Wall Street. Yes, yes. So 2006, I was in New York. I was, I was enjoying the social aspect of living in New York, but professionally, there was always this feeling of is this what I'm supposed to be doing? So when 2009 happened and the Great Recession kicked in, I was I was probably a, a sensible employee to be laid off because I wasn't quite passionate about the work. Yes. So that's that's where I ended up in 2009, along with a lot of other professionals in the finance industry. I found myself out of a job and you know to a large extent wondering what my next steps would be. That that makes a lot of sense to me. I think a lot of us, um, even those of us sometimes, myself included, who, who went to law school straight out of you know undergrad, it's often like, well, this is what you do next if you're a polytechnic. <laughs> when you're you know because you're you're either a, a lawyer, a doctor, or you know in some cases an engineer. And, you know, those are the those are the things to grasp for, or someone. Yeah. So 
Um, it makes total sense to me. So what happened next? You, you were laid off and you're living in this very expensive city. Uh, what now? So fortunately, I had some savings, not too much of it. And I spent the next year of my life basically just wandering around New York City, taking a, taking a hard look inwards to try to figure out who I was and and what exactly it was that I meant to, it was that I was meant to do. And I, I will say during that time, it was, it was challenging to watch all of my friends um, and people that I'd met professionally because they all seemed to be doing well. It all, it, it seemed like everyone had a purpose and a direction and they never faltered, right? So for someone who, who, you know, gone to a pretty good school and gotten a pretty good job out of school. It, it felt like it felt like I was being left behind. And to see everyone kind of just rocketing past me was very frustrating. So I would say that the time when I got laid off, that was definitely the first major setback that I felt as an adult. And, you know, the next year was just, I could, I could, best describe it is is truly just like aimlessly wandering around New York just partaking and in, in the social aspects of New York to, to try to make myself feel better but at the same time I really was looking for something that just resonated with me because yeah. what I found at that time was that I really had never felt a sense of agency I was a product of of someone who had done what they were suggested that they do pretty well. And what I mean by that, that was, you know, my, my folks are, are first generation immigrants and they had said, you know, get, get a good education, go to a good school and then, and then get a good job that pays pretty well. And that's what I did, but I felt it ultimately very unfulfilling. So at that point, I felt as if I was a newborn, truly. I, it was a time of, of a lot of reflection and making decisions for myself, which it, it sounds ridiculous to say, but I, at age 26, felt like the first time I truly was able to make large decisions for myself based on who I was and 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 what I thought was best for myself at the time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that makes total sense. I, you know, I can identify with that as, as well, um, you know, not graduating from law school, that was fine. And then entering the profession is when I started myself to realize like, this doesn't quite fit. Um, <laughs> I don't know that this is a good place for my talent. I don't know that this is uh, going to make me happy in the long term. So it, it, it yes. does make sense. It does make sense. And, you know, there are societal impacts and parental impacts and all kinds you know, mm-hmm. go into things just because they need the money. And then, yeah to a place of safety look up and go oh my god what have i done this is not a good fit this is not a a good long-term fit so that makes complete and total sense you know you mentioned that this journey led to getting into ultimately a broadcast analyst showtime sports role which i think is pretty amazing did you have experience with mixed martial arts before or how did how did that sort of come about yeah, and this came probably about 
maybe like nine months into my New York City walkabout adventure that I was having, I, I was near Madison Square Park. And I, I just distinctly remember this because this was one of the major inflection points in my life. But it was kind of dusk. And if if you've ever been in New York City, when the sun's kind of going down during the summer, you know that there is this like palpable electricity in the city as everybody winds down. People are going to dinner. Um, the city seems to come to life after a long day of work. And I was walking near Madison Square Park and just thinking to myself, man, I'm so lucky to live here. Like I, I've gotta, I've gotta make this work. You know, I I know I'm I can do something meaningful with my life. I just need to figure out what it is. And at the time there was a gym above a subway as I was walking down the street. I think it was I don't remember, it was like 27th Street, um, 6th Avenue or somewhere around there. I look up to the second floor of this building and there are guys training there and you can see them in the window. It's above a subway. The sun's setting, so you have this like pinkish kind of hue. The sun's filtering through this street. It's almost like the universe is telling me to look up. Uh, and there, there are two guys, they're sparring. And it's such a weird sight to see in New York City. You, you know, there are people running around in suits and they're all going home from their professional jobs. They look they look very professional and, and whatever attire it is that was required at their office place. And then there's these two guys just punching and, and kicking each other in the window <laughs> on the second floor. And I'm just drawn to this. I can't take my eyes off it. So I walk across the street. I get buzzed in to the gym and I walk up and it's an MMA gym. Oh, wow. And I had no idea what they were doing. I boxed a little bit in college, so I understood that side of it. I was looking for something that kind of would fulfill that side of, of what I was looking for in terms of competition, just physical activity. But the other things that were going on in the gym, I didn't understand. There were people rolling, uh, which is just a term used for like jujitsu. When you're practicing submission grappling, there were people in their training Muay Thai, and it was a moment where I decided, oh, this is this this might be it. Let's get into this. So I started training at that gym and it became very apparent very quickly that this was going to be an obsession. And I spent oh, six days a week, four, five hours a day just living in a gym, just training, competing. Um, and I wanted to parlay that into a job, something that I thought I might be able to turn into a career. And that was really the first time I felt that I'd actually gotten a foothold after being laid off, where I thought I could maybe kind of catapult myself into something meaningful. Yeah. And it was it was a liberating feeling. It was almost as if I'd wandered for for so long and I'd found something. I just didn't quite know how to translate that into something that would that would provide for me. You know, how could I get a job doing this without being a professional fighter? Yeah. Um, and you know, I I just constantly kept my eyes and ears open to try to meet people in the industry, to try to get my foot in the door somewhere. And 
after after a few months, it just so happened someone in the gym was an editor for Showtime Sports doing specifically mixed martial arts editing. Wow. And uh, on no uncertain terms, I, I went up to that person and I said, I, I really would love to come in and meet your team and meet your boss um, and just let them know that I'm there. And when I was able to get in the door, I essentially just said, hey, I'm here. You know, I'm a college graduate. I've worked on Wall Street. I've, I can do, I can learn very quickly and I'm willing to work for free. Wow. And so they brought me on as an unpaid intern at age 27 when I was living in New York City. That's the type of thing you can only do when you're, when you're single. Yes. Um, <laughs> and, and when you're single and young. And yeah. so that's what I did. I, wow. I took a job as an unpaid intern working alongside people who were sometimes like seven, eight years younger than me and just doing the best I could to tr- to parlay that into a full-time paying job. That's amazing. I mean, that's a great story, James. I mean, there's so many little nuggets for this. Before we get too far down this, I just, for myself and for our listening audience, tell us what mixed martial arts is and how it's different kinds uh, of martial arts. Let's, let's get that clarified. Yeah, that's that. I, I take that for granted. I assume everyone knows what this is. But um, for those who are unfamiliar, if you've ever seen or heard of the UFC, that is the world's biggest promotion for mixed martial artists. There are others around the world. Um, at the time, Strike Force was a big one. But essentially, mixed martial arts is it's a combat sports where you are allowed to fight standing up using boxing or Muay Thai, and then it also continues on the ground um, via striking and also Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, so submission grappling. And it's a blending of a lot of different martial arts forms. And it it started back in the mid-1990s as a way to find out which <clears throat> martial arts style was best, kind of like you would see in movies like Bloodsport, I mean, it, it was, it had its roots in, in very kind of cinematic themes, like what fighter from what country using their kind of native fighting art, like who, who would be the best based on kind of their regional training. And people would come from around the world and compete in these tournaments. And then it became very popular. And then, of course, it became commercialized. And now it is one of the biggest sports in the world. That's amazing. A, a great, great explanation. Thank you. I feel like I understand. Yeah. That makes great sense. I mean, I your story I love so much because I feel like there's like so many themes here. I mean, one, it's sort of like listening to that inner voice, uh, listening to the universe. It sounds kind of hokey, but sort of you know, <laughs> listening to what the universe it tells you, whether that's a spiritual thing, whether that's, you know, listening to the little Jiminy Cricket on your shoulder, <laughs> um, you know, or the, or, you know, just paying attention. Um, and I think it was so wise of you to kind of slow down and just sort of spend some time with yourself and kind of, you know, try to think through um, what might make sense based on your interests and skills. I identify with this story because when I was looking to get out of the practice of law, 
um, and do something else. And ultimately landed in recruiting. There was some of this for myself, you know, kind of mm. staring at LinkedIn, just scrolling to see what <laughs> my other friends were doing, just like for yeah. hours. Um, and then taking walks around the block and thinking to myself, like, what are my skills? What do I like doing? A lot of us don't take the time to think through that. Um, I speak at law schools all the time. I encourage, you know, junior folks who are trying to find their way in the law to like think through where their talents might lie and what they like. Yeah. Not just what sounds good, but you know, mm-hmm. what's good on paper, but you know, um, where might your skills be appropriately displayed, displayed and used? So I just think it's an amazing story. And then I think, you know, the other part that strikes me is your determination. You know, there's some resilience there in saying, I love this, but a lot of people could come away from, you know, doing mixed martial arts and say, there's no way for me to make a living out of this, right? Yeah. I mean, it's a hobby or whatever. It's a way for me to right. Stay, right? And then also at the same time too, like your determinedness, your doggedness in, I will work for free, which I realize is luxury that not everyone can afford, but yeah. it's something that I, I think there's a lesson in that. Sometimes I talk to um, associates who don't like the practice area they're in and they want to be in yeah. the area. And sometimes I say to them, like, can you figure out a way where you're writing articles or learning about that other thing? Can you do mm. work for another partner for free? Can you, you know, figure out a way, weasel your way, if you will, yeah. in doing some of this kind of work because that's the only way you're going to get the experience. Um, and if you aren't, you don't have the liberty to kind of hit the reset button and start again as a first year, you've got to sort of figure out a way to get some of these skills on the side as a hobby in your free time on the weekends. Otherwise, it's going to be very difficult to make that transition. So I, I think um, there's some really great lessons in your story. Yeah. And I love that you're like, you know, willing to humble yourself and say, I'll start out with the first year journalism students or the, you know, what, what yeah. in order to get that, 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 that's, that was tough. Yeah. I'm sure it was very, very humbling. Um, I'm curious, like what kinds of activities you were doing as an intern and how that sort of ultimately led to kind of a paid uh, position. The the job that I had was I was brought on as as essentially a, a subject matter expert in mixed martial arts, both from a competitive kind of technical standpoint and also just because I was obsessive about learning about the mixed martial arts athletes that were competing in various promotions. Um, so my job essentially at that point was was very cool, which was <clears throat> I could travel to different events around the country and I would interview the athletes in the pre-fight meetings and come up with kind of help come up with color commentary alongside the other broadcasters in the booth. And on fight night, I would be at the broadcasting table and I don't know if I still have these pictures, but my buddies would take pictures on when they would see me on TV and text it to me and say, Hey, you're on TV. And, you know, I'm like trying to work and they're, they, they're texting me that I'm on TV and <laughs> it was just, I love it was it. a, it was a cool time. It was a very, very amazing part of, of my journey um, to get to where I am today. And, you know, looking back, I never would have thought that that would be a stepping stone to where I ended up 
Um, and we can talk about this later, but you're right. There are a lot of lessons looking back, right? I think, I think resilience is constantly an undercurrent. Um, discomfort is also a common theme to success because I had never felt so uncomfortable with, with where I was uh, until after I'd, I'd kind of been untethered from the prescribed path. And that discomfort is ultimately, I think, how you accelerate growth, right? So once I embraced being uncomfortable, that's when I decided like, I can do this. I can be an unpaid intern. I can, I can use my savings. I can take on debt, but this opportunity needs to be vetted. Like I need to see where this is going to lead because I know in my heart that this is something that needs to happen. And I know in my heart that I'm going to regret this for the rest of my life if I don't take my shot. Yeah. yeah. <clears throat> no, I, I, I think that the, I amen to all of that. Um, you know, and, and good for you, because I think it takes some incredible courage and faith. Yeah. To, you, you don't see, you don't know what the future is going to. No. Um, and you're like, well, let's just, let me put one foot in front of the other and see where this goes. Um, Absolutely. An incredible amount of, of guts. And I, you know, encourage people to do this more. Um, it's hard to do um, with societal pressures, monetary pressures. Mm. Pressures. I'm almost afraid to ask this question. <laughs> what did your parents think of this? Dare I ask? Uh, what was going on? It turned into a lot of ignore calls from my parents because I knew what they were going to say. Right? They were going to ask, "Are you, you know, are you getting paid? What are you doing? <laughs> did we did we send you to like you know SAT prep class for you to work for free? You know, it, it, there was a lot of this and. And I think that at the time I had to be very selfish because frankly, it seemed like, you know, I know my, my folks would have believed in me. If you asked them, they would have said, of course we believe in our son. But at the time it felt like the only person that believed in me was myself. Yeah. Right. Cause it didn't make sense. What I was doing made absolutely no sense from a resume standpoint. It didn't make sense from a professional standpoint. It didn't make sense from just an age standpoint, right? It just didn't make sense that a 27-year-old would be working for free. Um, and, and so that resiliency, that just, 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 I'm just going to send it attitude was what got me through that period. And it worked out because I, I genuinely tried to just overperform at everything I did. And within after the, like a few months of, of kind of like a trial internship period, I was brought in as a full-time broadcast analyst. And now I was traveling a lot. I was in California one weekend. I'd be in Nashville the next, next weekend. Um, and I thought that everything was going to work out. I yeah. thought, man, is, is what, what was like, all that time just kind of looking inwards and hurting and being humbled. Was it all for this? Because if it was, it was worth it. Yeah. And I, I felt like just, just, it felt perfect. Like I was so happy with who I was. I was so happy with what I'd accomplished. And then everything just came to an absolute screeching halt. Uh, and I was hit with 
arguably the biggest setback I've ever had in my life, just when everything was looking up. Yeah. You've mentioned this previously to me. Tell, tell us a little bit about what happened. You know, you're in this dream job and it was cut short abruptly by um, yeah. illness, it sounds like. Yeah, it started at work. I was do, putting together a packet um, for an upcoming fight and the computer screen was kind of looking a little bit weird and hazy and I just figured it was because I'd just been working too much. I've been looking at a computer screen um, for too long. Uh, it's one of those things where something could be wrong, but if you really think about how wrong it could be, it starts scaring you a little bit. So you just put it off and you're like, ah, it'll go away. Right, right. Um, and and so I, I went home, um, just didn't really think much more of it. I went to bed and the next morning I woke up, got ready for work. I remember having a bowl of cereal and I'm kind of swishing the cereal around in my mouth and realizing I can't taste anything on the right side of my tongue. If I like, if I kind of tilt my head to the left, I can taste the cereal. If I tilt my head to the right, I, I don't even, I can't, I can barely feel anything. And so now I'm kind of thinking, this is, this is really bizarre. But again, if I thought too much of it, I was like, uh, this is kind of scary. So I put my clothes on, I went to work and I'm working. And at a certain point, I'm like, I can't even read. I can't read. I can't see the letters on the screen right now. Everything looks like I'm underwater. So right now. I go home and I take a nap and then I wake up. And now the proverbial, you know, it's hit the fan, right? Yeah. Like, I am deteriorating really rapidly and I have no idea what's going on. So I, I get my roommate, which Carlo, if you're listening, thank you so much. Cause he's like, we need to get you to the hospital. And I was like, I don't need to go to a hospital. And he's like, no, because yeah. <laughs> yeah. he was a physical therapist. And I was like, is there a stretch I can do to like make me feel better? <laughs> he's like, no, we need to get you to the hospital. Not a stretch <laughs> My friend, no, this is a little more serious. I mean, that's cute, Jane. Come on, let's go. Oh, bless your roommate, God. Yeah, so he, he drags me to the emergency room and then we go to NYU and immediately they're like, we need to get you into first we need to do a cat scan we need to we need to do a battery of tests and they they're like okay we think you've had a stroke oh my so God. we need to take you to the stroke unit so <sighs> i get put in an intensive stroke unit and the whole time rebecca you know what i'm thinking i need to get back to work oh all this can't be for nothing please yeah. don't tell me please don't tell me all of this is for nothing yeah yeah, so I'm I'm just in the stroke unit. They they call my parents. They call them in. They're like, this could be pretty serious. You should probably you know you come see your son. And they're doing all these tests and they can't figure out what it is. So they've come to the conclusion that it's not a stroke, but the right side of my body is paralyzed, and I can't I can't walk. I've like utterly lost my ability to walk. So I'm kind of stumbling around. I have to get in a wheelchair to even go to the bathroom. I'm in a room with three other people who have had strokes and there are, you know, when you go to a hospital, sometimes you're just like in a room and there's not a nurse around and the nurse will come check on you once every like five hours to make sure you're okay. And a doctor will see you once a day. Yes. 
in this particular unit, there is a nurse assigned to you full time, and there is a nurse sitting at a desk next to your bed. Um, so it's like the, the the intensive care unit or something. Yeah, like something of that nature. This is not just like come and go as you please and eat cookies and drink. Juice. No, it is. It is like it, it, it's about as. <laughs> as intimidating as an environment where you can be where you're supposed to get better because it feels very serious and and you don't it's it's very it's startling to be in an environment where even the doctors are kind of looking at you worried right yeah and so after about a week they figure out that i have contracted this very rare autoimmune um, disease that you get through a virus and the transmit it's so rare that they actually don't know how you contract it. They don't know like how this disease works to get into your body. But fortunately, once they diagnose it, the, the, <clears throat> the treatment for it is very clear cut. And you know, people rarely die from this, uh, but a lot of people do have kind of material neurological implications after you after you're all said and done and you leave the hospital. Oh. And for me, that was, I had to learn how to walk again. So here I am, a healthy, healthy person who had been <clears throat> a very active competitor in jujitsu. And, and I'm in a hospital, in a hospital gown, like learning how to walk using a railing with my dad holding my hand. Man. Yeah. And to talk about setbacks, to talk about resilience, I mean, I wasn't really thinking about anything at that point but just surviving because it felt like nothing was ever going to get better yeah and um learning how to walk again it was it was you know you talk about putting one foot in front of the other it's literally what i did for yeah. a few weeks i would look down at my feet willing my feet to just like make forward progress like come on we can do this uh and that's how I spent the next month and a half in, wow. the, in the stroke unit of a hospital, just trying to get myself to a place where I could function autonomously again. And this is all after what I thought was going to be one of the bigger setbacks in my life. And then there was that like movie like journey to self-discovery and then what seems like fate intervening and then the success um but I was just hit again even harder than the first time yeah because you were doing something you loved and you thought this is it you know this is it this is my career exactly exactly and fighting so hard for it I mean that's got to be I, I could see how someone could get really really depressed you know from that kind of experience yeah. um you know I'm curious kind of how you managed to come come out of that. Cause I, I could just, you know, I'm, I'm imagining that it took you many probably weeks and months to, to get back to your body, to, to, to get to a place where you know, you're functioning in a way that, um, you know, even close to where you had before, how long did you to get out of the hospital and to be able to, to walk again and, and sort of regain some of that functionality where you're starting to feel a little bit more like yourself. So it was two months in the hospital and then I was discharged. And 
to be completely honest, I've, I've never fully regained that level of athleticism I, I had prior. It just, my body just kind of doesn't respond as quickly as it used to. And I think that's just partially the nerve damage that happened Yeah. from that virus. Um, but I was very fortunate because while I walked out of that room, most people in that room, you know, they weren't going to, to make a recovery similar to the one that I did. And, you know, I think a lot of the, the strength I would draw was, was I felt like I, I truly just had another chance, right? I had another chance to, to go out and, and really, I felt reborn almost. I, I don't want, I don't want this sounds really cheesy, but it was just like, all right, let's start clean slate. You've got another chance. You know, you're extremely fortunate to be able to walk out of this hospital. Let's make the most of it. Yeah, yeah. And it was. Yeah, this idea that, you know, it could be a lot different. The outcome could have been a lot different. Um, totally. Yeah. yeah. And um, it's funny because when I was in the hospital, I had so much time to do nothing because I couldn't get out of the bed. And, you know, there's only so much TV you can watch. And, and uh, I had these LSAT books just in my room because at one point, a long time ago, I thought that, you know, a long time ago, meaning right after I graduated college, I thought maybe it'd be nice to go to law school. So I had these LSAT prep books and they just collected dust on a shelf. And I asked my roommate to bring me just some books so I could read. And the LSAT book was one of those books. That's so funny. And so I just started kind of taking practice tests because it was a great way to pass the time. And also it was so painful that I forgot about my own misery in the hospital. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I, I wasn't thinking about your roommate. I'm like, roommate, this is going to be a fun thing to like, you know, I know what I'll bring James instead of like some cool, like, <laughs> I'll bring an LSAT. <laughs> that tickles me. Huh? This roommate keeps on giving. Um, so yeah. That's so funny. Um, so yeah, you're like, let's let's pass the time by engaging my brain and trying to forget what's going on. Okay. Yeah, okay. Exactly. And how, and how did that lead to actually taking the LSAT and going to law school? Well, the LSAT became kind of my next obsessive challenge. If you can't tell when I get into something, I, I tend to be very obsessive about things. And it was it was my thing in the hospital. I just wanted to score. I just wanted to increase my scores. I just wanted to do better because I didn't have much else to do. And I wanted to see how good I could be at this, at, at taking this particular test. And then that was kind of launched me into learning more about what potential career paths could be. And the more I read about the practice of, of law um, and all of the various potential practice areas I could go into, I thought this would be a nice springboard, right? Like maybe, maybe I don't know exactly what I want to do with this law degree, but I could definitely do something. And I could think I could do this long-term. Um, so I took the LSAT and I enrolled at Fordham. And that was that. Was that. Uh, and really there's, there's more that happens afterwards. Um, but another large inflection point. And I think that the myth of, of lawyers is that 
they're they're calculated they know what they're doing and Mm -hmm. and as you can tell by my story like some of this stuff is just trust your gut and send it yeah right give give it a try give it a whirl (laughs) yeah but I, I would I would just qualify that by saying trust your gut give it a whirl but absolutely give it the best effort you possibly can because if you don't, if you just kind of half-heartedly do this, then it, there's just no point, right? That's right. Um, you're just not going to realize yeah. what could have been unless you really just just send it. Totally. Yeah, no, that makes complete and total <clears throat> to me. Um, I, I felt that way when I got into recruiting. I think for a long while, mm. I had one toe. I, I stayed active, like I kept my license yeah. active because I want, you know, in case of emergency, break glass. and. Mm-hmm funny because the minute I sort of gave that up and was like this is what I'm doing and I need to be like whole hog like both feet let's go yeah I I flourished um and I think I think that's a really additional good lesson which is like if you're gonna bother to try something you really should put forth the effort um Mm -hmm. because you won't really know if you're gonna be successful unless you go you know full full bore like you know at, at it um that will let you know if it makes sense and it is a good fit um, kind of just dipping your toe can, can, you know, may not heed the same kind of results. And I, I think that makes a really good um, point and lesson for our listeners. Well, I I, um, I could talk to you about this all day, James. And so yeah. <laughs> uh, for, for time's sake, I, I'm going to limit it to two more questions. You sure. know, the, there's so many lessons I, I'm mm-hmm. taking from your experience. I'm sure there's plenty that uh, you have taken. I, I'm curious how that sort of windy road and non-linear path impacts your work today and what you do at Whole Foods and how you think about your career and how you, you know, um, you know, act um, in your your current role. Um, What what sort of impacts has it has has that entire experience had on you today? That's That's a really good question. I think it's tough to to pinpoint exactly what from that experience has shaped me as as an attorney i think in the aggregate i will say that that time essentially relearning how to do something that was so basic um was so humbling that it taught me try not to be antagonistic with your with your colleagues because there's just nothing's nothing's guaranteed um folks are always going to be going through something when they're you know even if you're negotiating against them um or you know if if they're a counterparty things get a little bit heated you know people are always dealing with their own things right like that's right Sometimes I'm at work and I do feel kind of the effects of 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 the my time in the hospital, meaning that I, I seem to get kind of tired a little bit easier. And and you would never know this, right? If you're if you're negotiating against me, and sometimes I'm sure it might I'm a little bit short. But that's that has nothing to do with what my counterparties are doing. It's just that I'm just kind of going through something. And I try to remember that. And I try to be very cordial and work with people. And try to maintain relationships rather than being the antagonistic attorney on the other side. Yeah, yeah, the sort of scorched, um, stereotypical. 
Yeah. And yeah. I will say that it's it's made my job a lot more enjoyable. I think if the path to success is a little bit easier when you do that. And I mean, what's the downside of of having people who respect you and appreciate you rather than be, you know, being the person that people would rather not work with? Exactly. Right. So exactly. it's just a little bit of humility and a little bit more of just reminding yourself that that just be mindful that we're all humans trying to make yeah. a living and we've chosen a very difficult profession where perfection is expected and to the extent that we can help one another out I, I don't I see no downside to that no not at all I totally I totally agree and um I, I think that's a great piece of advice is like you never know what sort of battles people yeah that, that's that's a great nugget. Well, the past few years, as you know, James, um, have been extremely difficult for <clears throat> COVID due to world events, due to the sort of tumult we're seeing in our own uh, legal industry. What advice would you give newly minted attorneys who may not have experienced this kind of tumult in their professional and personal lives before? Rebecca, you're just asking a bunch of really good questions. Um, I hope I hope <laughs> my answers my can be. <laughs> I'm trying. I hope, <laughs> I hope my answers can be as pointed and uh, as as insightful. So, you know, if I could crystallize the things that we've talked about, I would say with my very first setback of being laid off and wandering for a year, lesson one there is 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 be patient. It's so hard to be patient when when your job and your livelihood is on the line. But don't jump at the first things, because I certainly had opportunities to do things that wouldn't have really progressed my life and my career forward, but that were available. And I chose to wait. And, you know, that paid off handsomely. Um, so that would be lesson one from the first setback. Lesson two that I always take with me is from my time in the hospital that I think there is an overemphasis on constantly looking towards the horizon and 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 trying to understand and and divine what's meant much further on down the line. But sometimes it's okay to just look down at your feet and make sure you're putting one foot in front of the other. Because forward progress is forward progress, right? And for me, I felt at times that I wasn't meant to jump. Sometimes I was just kind of in a place where I needed to take baby steps. And that's okay. And that's totally fine. Um, and kind of this move in-house, I would say, and this is probably something that maybe some people can find comfort in, is that <clears throat> don't buy into this myth that attorneys necessarily have to compromise and that attorneys are inherently unhappy in their jobs because the nature of the work makes you unhappy. I can tell you right now that I have never been so satisfied and fulfilled in my professional career. I love coming into work. That sounds like a lie. It is not. I love my team. I love the substance of the work. I love my clients. Um, it's there. It can be there for anyone who's struggling and wondering if there's a light at the end of the tunnel. I promise you, 
it's a possibility you're hearing from one of them. Um, and I at times wondered if if there was ever kind of a, a, a practice within law that could provide you with such happiness. Um, but don't don't lose hope, you know, be patient, take baby steps when you need to, and just understand that there there's something there's something that could be a perfect fit. I love that. I think that's great. Wonderful yeah. um, for for anyone junior or senior who's in this profession. Mm -hmm. James, thank you so much for giving me your time and being so open and honest. Yeah. Me and our listeners today, I got a lot out of this. I know that um, anyone listening to this conversation will get a lot out of it. And I sincerely appreciate your time. Yeah, Rebecca, always a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you for listening to Bouncing Back, Resilience for Lawyers. Join us next time for another story about thriving after overcoming challenges. You can find Bouncing Back and other programming for lawyers on MLA's Legal Talk Network.